Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> it is. It's a free country. It turns out, this is a very controversial thing to say. You hear all the time from our politicians, racism has no place in our society. Turns out that's false. I don't want there to be any racism. <laughs> I wish there was no racism, but it's constitutionally protected, and it has to be. And um, because if not, you know, pick your least favorite character, whether it's Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson. I don't care who you pick. They get to define racism, and it has no place in society according to their definition. Watch out. Watch out. Constitutionally protected. <laughs> Hey, welcome, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers, if you're watching us on our YouTube channel. Uh, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined um, back by Josh Bertram, who has been taking a sabbatical, doing his rounds on the Free Britney crusade. Um, and this week, we actually have a special guest, um, Dr. James Lindsay, who is an American-born author, mathematician, and political commentator. Um, he's written six books spanning a range of subjects including religion, philosophy of science, and postmodern theory. He's the founder of New Discourses and currently promoting his new book, Cynical Theories, um, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. That's a mouthful. So That's what so, everybody says. <laughs> so, I so, can explain. Yeah, pl- yeah please do, Ashley. Let, let's, let's start there. Okay, so we wanted to call the book. There's a whole saga to naming the book. As if anybody's ever written a book, they know it, it's a thing to name a book. <laughs> so we finally settle on the title "Cynical Theories" with the little gimmick on the cover where it says "Critical Theories," and we cross out "critical" and replace it with "cynical." <laughs> and um, I'm very proud of that title, actually. And then we needed a subtitle, and the original subtitle was going to be about the activist scholarship thing. So just the part, the the first part, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity. That was it. That was what we wanted. And then my our publisher kind of field tested it in front of some other people. And they were like, yeah, but isn't that a good thing? And it was like, ah, we have to say it's a bad thing somehow. And then it's like, so we spent like a week trying to figure out a way to smoothly do that. And there was no smooth road. So it was like, let's just put 200 words. And this yeah. is on brand for Helen anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that's uh, that's kind of funny, actually. I, uh, we've interviewed quite a few authors who have had mouthfuls full of um, titles and whatnot. So I'm always kind of intrigued on like, why is that title so long? It's it's even worse when you're trying to announce somebody that, that's promoting a book. And you're like, I mean, if you have to take a breath in between the title. Um, <laughs> that's more work well, for me. <laughs> if you breathe, if you, if you took a breath, I am deeply apologetic for the <laughs> people who complained to made us put uh n dash in our title and extra clause because they said that it wasn't clear what our stance was on it with the whole calling it cynical i thought was was obvious but. yeah yeah well well um we we're really we're really excited to have you on the show we've kind of been dedicating a few um episodes just based around critical race theories and we wanted to um you know get get your viewpoint, your your input, your thoughts about it, and and I and I'm re- one of the things I think I'm most fascinated about talking to you about is is that you, you've had a pretty good history about um, at, 
I don't know if debunking is the word, but but exposing a lot of um, hypocrisy or hype, kind of especially like an academic academia world. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. You were instrumental in like the the Sokol. I think I'm saying that right. Sokol hoax. Sokol. Yeah. Sokol. Well, there was a Sokol hoax that was done by a guy named Alan Sokol in the 90s. I didn't have anything to do with that. I was in high school. Um, we did a kind of new project that sometimes is called Sokol Squared and is sometimes called the Grievance Studies Affair in 2017 and 18. And we where Alan wrote one paper and got it accepted by a social commentary journal at Duke University. We wrote 20. And went whole hog on this thing. Um, and we had seven of those accepted and we still had seven under consideration. Yeah. And, and some of the, t- some of the titles, uh, I was, yeah. as I was, as I were like, I mean, it, it was almost straight out of like a Babylon B, um, type of like, um, article. Uh, if, if I recall, there's one about, um, like interpretive dancing and astronomy or something. Yeah. 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 Actually, it's funny you mentioned the Babylon Bee. One of our papers was actually about not being allowed to use satire to make fun of social justice. Like that's actually, and the title was "When the Joke's on You," and that like it came to pass just recently, just a few weeks ago. I talked to Seth, to Seth Dillon about it, even, and, and I said, you know, our paper came true in the Babylon Bee, which could not possibly be any funnier. Yeah, yeah. You know, huge fans of the Babylon Bee yeah. in my house. And so, you know, they got attacked saying that what they were doing wasn't genuinely satire because satire can't go after, um, you know, marginalized groups or projects <laughs> yeah. on their behalf, which is exactly the argument we made in our paper. Mm-hmm. And so that paper came true in the Babylon Bee, which is great. <laughs> then uh, for those who haven't seen it, you know, Robin D'Angelo has a, I guess, infamous now interview she gave on her new book, Nice Racism. And she makes the same argument. In fact, she makes the argument so close using some of the same examples that we did <laughs> that I think she plagiarized us. I mean, I can't prove it. I'm not going to file a yeah. case or a yeah. suit or whatever, but like, it's the same argument exactly yeah. with several of the same examples. She brings up like South Park and the Simpsons and we, we did that. Um, <laughs> So I really wonder, you know, if uh, those papers, they cut close to the bone. Yeah. You know, I wonder if, you know, how many of those are going to have a legacy where we wrote them as satire and they're going to have a legacy of being turned true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so funny that we we did interview uh, Ethan Nicole from the Babylon Bee, and uh, yeah, and he, he he had a lot to say on sort of just the the irony of of who gets to you know wield the satire sword. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's the thing. But the truth is, and and of course Ethan's good in this, Kyle's good in this as well, Kyle Man, and then um, Seth Dillon is just brilliant about being able to talk about the fact is satire doesn't work unless it's hitting power. It actually doesn't work. It is actually looks like comes off as is interpreted as bullying unless Mm. it hits power. Satire only works to undercut illegitimate power. And so the fact that what they're doing works, the fact that it hits Mm -hmm. so hard and so effectively and is so funny means that it's puncturing power, (laughs) power that the people who are wielding that power are denying that they have. And again, that was the thesis of that that paper, you know, is like, we can't possibly have power if we're representing marginalized groups because we represent yeah. marginalized groups. So the power has been taken from, and it's just so absurd, but there it, it, it's an exposure of part of the lie around what they're doing that they 
they claim that they don't have massive amounts of power when they blatantly, even before they had the White House and whatever <laughs> else, they blatantly did. And now that they have the White House, it's like, whoa, we're on like the fast track for this stuff, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking about hidden power, so um, let's talk about uh, critical race theory. And I know that's an area <laughs> that you've been pretty vocal um, about and have given lots of talks about. And um, I'd, I'd like to kind of hear from you about what what is critical race theory. So if, 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 if there's a new listener or somebody coming to the show for the first time, they hear a lot of the critical race theory, they Google our podcast comes up and they're like, what's this all about? Like, what, what is critical race theory? Well, let me just recommend people read a book before I start talking about this. And the book I recommend they read is not my book. I recommend they read the book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk. Richard Delgado was at the meeting that took place in Madison, Wisconsin in 1989 when critical race theory was kind of put together, coming out of critical legal studies. He was there, like I said, he was there from the beginning. He wrote the kind of late high school, early college, undergraduate textbook on the subject in 2001, which is Critical Race Theory and Introduction. The very first section of that book is titled, What is Critical Race Theory? So I don't want people just to take my word for this. Go read it yourself. You know, see it for yourself what it says. See if it convinces you. See what you think. Like that's up front. It's just two, that whole section is just two paragraphs. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take what well, they describe it in two paragraphs that in my opinion, don't say much until you understand them. And then they say a lot. But so this is an authoritative source. The book is in its third edition now. It was third edition came out in 2017. So they haven't walked back from these ideas. It's not like, oh, that was 2001. This is 2021. Mm -hmm. A lot has happened. No, that thought was present in 1989 at the workshop that they, they did in Madison. It was present in 2001 when they wrote the book. It's still present in 2021 today. They still stand by these views. So they should, if you, people want to know what critical race theory is, that book is actually short. It's only 170 pages long or something. It's a very easy read. I read the whole thing most recently on a flight to Los Angeles from whatever my layover was. So it was three and a half hours, four hours or something like that. I read the whole, th the whole thing. It's not hard to read. Um, so I encourage that. Now, that said, I mean, I can quote from that first paragraph. They say it's a movement of activists and scholars, which is a strange way to frame something that they call a theory as a movement of activists and scholars that seeks to 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 transform, they say, the relationship between race, racism and power. That's actually the first sentence of the book. And they say critical race theory is a movement of activists and scholars who seek to transform the relationship between race, racism, and power. They then differentiate themselves from the civil rights movement by saying, while they share many of the same ambitions of the civil rights movement, on the other hand, they reject many. Uh, it, they first they expand its range into including things like the feelings and into feelings into the unconscious, into context and history, and all of these different you know broader ranges of than the civil rights movement addressed. And then they say that they reject its core approach, which was incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress. They say, unlike traditional approaches to civil rights, which embrace incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory, and they go on to say, calls into question or questions at its very foundation, uh, no, calls into question the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory. So they're calling into question the idea of liberalism as a classical liberal framework. They call into question equality uh, theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. So they these are the things that they're targeting, and page that's pages two and three of their book. They say that this is a movement that started in law 
coming out of critical legal studies and it rapidly expanded into other disciplines. They mentioned specifically education first. That was by 1995. You already had Gloria Ladsden Billings and William Tate writing toward a critical race theory of education in 1995, a very influential paper. Uh, They mentioned politics. They mentioned ethnic studies and American studies. Uh, so other academic disciplines, and they say that it's rapidly spreading, even again by 2001, because I the edition I actually have is the first edition. So I usually read the 2001 edition when I'm looking at it. And so even by 2001, it was already filtering out of law into education, into politics, into basically every domain that it could could reach into. On page 23 in that book, they say that critical race theorists are highly suspicious of another liberal mainstay, namely rights. So they're a little bit not on board with the idea that rights, they say that rights are alienating, that rights are a kind of a mythology, that the dominant or, dominant powers in society, so for critical race theory, there'd be white supremacy or racists, white people, whiteness in general is scapegoated. So they arrange society so that people believe that they have rights and then they use the idea of rights to maintain power. And an example of that that you might have would be, you know, well, if I use a racial slur and I say, well, I have free speech, my right to free speech gives me the power to be able to do, you know, some kind of a mimetic harm to you or whatever. So rights become alienating. Rights become a tool of oppression. Rights are also characterized by Robin D'Angelo in a 2012 book called Is Everyone Really Equal? Um, and by the way, the, her answer to that question is no. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. But she actually says in there that that she says that liberal humanism is where these movements began and they rapidly turn to reject liberal humanism because they fool minorities, whether it's racial minorities, sexual minorities, or whatever, into believing that they have more rights and opportunities than social structures actually allow. So we see that it's also very concerned with social structural theory, which if we said that it's concerned with how the superstructures of society organize things, everybody would automatically get their little like Marx fox ears popping up because it is, it's rooted in Marxism. Um, it's a Marxist style analysis of race and racial power in society uh, that, that puts race as the, in, in Gloria Ladson Billing and William Tate's words, as the, that's an italics, central construct that explains inequality. Um, that it's Marxist is also not in question, um, besides the fact that they invoke neo-Marxist thinkers and talk about neo-Marxists all the time, which isn't quite the same as Marxism, but it's close. Um, that meeting in 1989, Richard Delgado, in his own words, explains in an interview that he did in the late 90s that uh, they were in a convent off the University of Wisconsin at Madison campus where they had a lot of liberal uh, left-leaning leftist, he actually says, legal scholarship was happening there, and they were in a convent. And he said, you know, stained glass windows and austere room with stained glass windows and crucifixes. And then he says, an odd setting for a bunch of Marxists. So that's where it comes from. That's what it is. And um, that's, you know, that's their definition of it. I give a simpler definition, which is that it is the belief. And I mean that in the sense of like faith driven belief, but not like good religious faith. That's bad religion. (laughs) But it's it is the it's a belief system that takes as its fundamental belief that racism organized and maintained by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. And that the only people who are actually capable of seeing it and understanding it are people who have what they call a critical consciousness of race or a racial consciousness. And that critical consciousness of race um, makes them actually a critical race theorist. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. 
I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, The Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Hmm. Okay, so that was a lot that we just got right there. And so I'm trying yeah, to that's two it. years of research packed into no, like four man, minutes. Amazing. So, so here's my question. So we have the central, you know, the organizing central organizing principle that race. Mm-hmm. Um, is what divides people or, you know, that, mm-hmm. or essentially this like racism that's inherent within white people right now um, because they're white or because they're majority. Maybe that's a question we'll address later, but like there's some inherent you know issue there and that's what's structuring all of society. So there is no institution in society that can be trusted as to be free of racism. This that's like, right. Yeah. I mean, it's like an the, impossibility, the, right? Under, under yeah. The first tenant world, of critical race theory. Worldview, wouldn't you say? A it is a worldview. It, it, yes, definitely. So, oh, so uh, what's wrong? Take me into the worldview a little bit deeper and then tell me what's wrong with it. Like drill okay, a so hole the, into the worldview and then put dynamite <laughs> in there. I mean, besides the there. fact that it's derived directly from Marx, which should already give you pause. But um, so on, on page seven of said book that I encourage everybody to read, Critical Race Theory and Introduction, uh, you have them begin to outline the core tenets or core assumptions, or if we were going to play kind of the apologetics way, the core presuppositions of critical race theory. And the first one they say is that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. It is the so-called normal science of society. So it is the it holds the belief that racism is the default expectation for explaining any and all inequality, of course, that appears across racial divides. It wouldn't explain, for example, gender inequality. But so if you have any kind of a on average statistical difference between outcomes by race, and it's not quite true because Asian Americans kicking everybody's butt does not count as racism, as it turns out, in the <laughs> usual way. It's not racist against white people that Asians are kicking butt. It turns out that that's Asians becoming white according to the theory. Uh, so but what it works out to is if you have racial, if you have so-called brown or black people coming out below white, then the explanation for that one way or another is racism. So what it's doing is it, it's flattening the, explana- the explanatory field to a tremendous degree. Um, that's actually a very dangerous thing to do because it, it, there could actually be other phenomena that are behind it. It could be that racism is contributing. It could be that racism is the cause, but it could also be that racism is not actually that relevant or that something else is relevant that isn't easily or even possibly explained by racism. But for them, any inequity in outcomes that disfavors brown and black people to white people is evidence of racism. If you read Ibram Kendi's, for example, little missive that he put in Politico, where he was going to, how do we solve inequality? He was asked, and the answer's in a paragraph, and he says that we should create a constitutional amendment that is going to be an anti-racist constitutional amendment, and it's based, he says, on two principles. The first of those is that disparate impact by racial category is proof of racism. Hmm. And so... All of a sudden, other explanatory mechanisms go away. Now, obviously, the issue, if we want to drill into that a little deeper, 
is that that's a polarizing accusation. So I'll take you back in time to 1986 when critical race theory was probably technically born and it's kind of, you know, conceived. So we'll say it was born in 1989 in that convent. It was conceived really at the critical legal studies convention in 1986. The critical legal studies movement had been growing. It had already been touching on race issues, et cetera, through the 70s and in through the 80s. It had actually started to gain a lot of momentum through the early 80s. It was now generating, you know, the national conference would have either hundreds or sometimes over a thousand legal scholars show up to it. It's becoming a phenomenon, right? It's This is very leftist, neo-Marxist um, analysis of law is what it is. It's the so-called new left that came out of the, the radical 60s approach to law. And so they invited some law scholars of color, as they described them, to present this conference. And what these people did was they showed up, and this is going to be very familiar to people living in 2021 now, is they, they, the, they had a panel. And what their panel was about was how do the structures of the critical legal studies movement itself reproduce racism and exclude scholars of color from our movement, right? And you can see the accusation of racism. You know, here we are in this most progressive legal thing. You all are racist too. And then what they describe is, well, that people were not happy with this. And that's what I'm saying. And whether the claim is true or not, the point is their analysis boils down to everything that generates difference of particular types can be explained by racism. And then I said that racism is a very polarizing and inflammatory accusation. And what happened in 1986 when they made this accusation on their panel was that these, many of them, very progressive, very race, you know, active legal scholars spoke up and were like, now, wait a minute, you're calling us racist. We're literally the vanguard against these kinds of problems. You're calling us racist, you know, and they're twisting that, that moral ratchet on, on them. And it turned into the, as you can imagine, a complete catastrophe. Everybody's arguing the whole conference polarized. I don't know if there was an even a 1987 critical legal studies conference, like it just nuked the, nuked the field. You could imagine it tearing a church apart. Similarly, you could imagine it tearing a company apart. It fractured it from within because now you have all these people who have to pick in a binary sense. Well, is this racism or is it not? And racism so powerful. Nobody, well, that's not true. It's not nobody. So few people today want to be racist. Right. That it's immediately like, you know, they're trying to get that off of them, like with great, like, it's like they're on fire trying to get racism <laughs> accusations off of them, you know, mm -hmm. stop, drop and roll to get the racism off. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is it, it polarizes. There are people who are like, well, the accusation was ridiculous. And then there are people who are like, well, there's some merit to it. And that rapidly turns into, you know, this is absolutely preposterous versus you guys are racists and it just polarizes everything. So when you start talking about like, how does this thing operate based off of its first core assumption, you can already see that its nature is going to tear apart rather than bring together. Um, and so that's one of the, just to drill down that far, you know, there are several core assumptions of critical race theory that they, they go through four or five in the book. There are, I've identified probably about 13 that could really be discussed. Um, the second one is interest convergence, which is a hypothesis of the kind of, I don't know, grandfather, I guess, of critical race theory. He and Kimberly Crenshaw are two very famous names. They're both Harvard Law. Um, Derek Bell was the first tenured, black tenured professor at Harvard Law. Uh, and he had this idea um, called interest convergence thesis, where he posited that Dominant groups in society, or for him particularly white people in society, don't 
take action. And he's looking at Brown versus Board of Education, for example. He's looking back at the Civil Rights Acts and the way that they got implemented. He's looking at the Great Society program under Johnson and what happened with it. And he said that what was really going on, and this is why we called the book Cynical Theories, because it's cynical interpretations of what he's looking back at. He said, what's really going on is not progress. It's white people working in their own self-interest while pretending to help out other people but it's really because it benefits them to help them out. They were saying that the argument that one of the arguments he gives is that the communists were using propaganda throughout the world through the fifties and saying, well, look how racist the United States is. And in communism, it's, you know, there are no racist workers of the world unite. We're not racist. They are racist. The anti-racist mantra was beginning and that to fight that communist propaganda, well, we're going to desegregate schools. And so it had nothing to do with actually desegregating schools or making conditions better or education better. It only had to do with, white people's agenda to fight communism and to make them look better to the rest of the world or whatever. It's a very cynical interpretation of why this happened. But this taken to its limit means that nobody can possibly do anything right. Right. It's a very so they say, well, you have to do the work. You have to be an anti-racist. But then they say when you do the work that you position yourself as an ally and now you're a good white and you've just done that so that you won't get accused of being racist anymore. So really, you're not interrogating your racism. And we turn to Robin DiAngelo and she says, I believe that white progressives, people who believe that they are less racist or not racist or people who get it do the most daily damage to people of color because they are no longer interrogating their racism at the fir- at, at the proper level and they don't believe that they're racist. So they're being racist without being able to acknowledge that they're racist. That's what the whole mm. book White Fragility is about. Mm. And so you can see how these things, when they get derived down to the level of activism and practice, what on earth like, am I supposed to do, right? I have no option that I can do that's possibly going to satisfy people who are trying to claim this power. So then you have this, and then what's going to happen, because that first thing is everything's going to polarize around it if it tries. And it's like, you can just see how this is a catastrophe in the making, not to mention kind of a conspiracy theory, like, oh yeah, all white people were just trying to cook it up to keep black people down in a more secret way. Like that's not a healthy way to look at a complicated Mm -hmm. situation. Are there degrees of that that are probably true? Probably. Are there degrees to, are there there unintended consequences where people thought they were doing something good that was stupid? Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. Like backfired, Mm -hmm. whoops, tried what that was bad. (laughs) You know, lots of that kind of stuff for real. But is this a great way to like do all the analysis and then everybody who disagrees must somehow have, you know, some vested interest in maintaining a social order that continues this problem? Uh, probably a very cynical interpretation of how this goes. And again, well, we've only touched on two and we didn't even go back to questions of very foundation of the liberal order, including <laughs> equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment, rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law, which is like basically throw the United States in the trash can. Um <laughs> So I don't have a lot of positive <laughs> stuff to say about critical race theory, y'all. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. No, no. Well, well I, I was wondering, um, you know, based on your on your um, definition of of critical race theory, I, I, I posed this to one of our other guests, actually, when we were talking about this, and I don't necessarily think I got the answer I, I was expecting or and or looking for. But um, you know, my my wife is white. My mom was born in Saigon. So like I'm half black, I'm half Vietnamese and my wife is white. My kids are like, I don't know what they are. They're just a mix of all bunch of stuff. Like there's Good some Germ- German and Polish in there, you know, and, and yeah, they're uh, probably immune to everything. <laughs> they probably are. <laughs> and, and sarcastic as a whip that I, I don't know where they get that from. But, um, but, but also like, you know, I, I had, I host a podcast with my white oppressor, Josh, 
Um, good to see you, Josh. <laughs> Keep up the good work, man. Wait, and, and you know, and like pressing from here, and 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 like for for the most part, like I, I I feel like I'm pretty well educated. I got my master's degree, and you know, I'm I'm fairly successful in my day job. And and like, how would how would CRT explain like my predicament, my you know, success or non-success, you know, I mean, I'm, we could always use more listeners, you know, so maybe I can, I could probably use CRT as a model to, to claim that I, I don't have as many listeners as like my Asian brothers or sisters or something, you know, but, but, but how, how would CRT explain like my situation? Well, it depends on your politics. That's the first thing you have to understand. Like Kanye West puts on a MAGA hat, says, I think for myself, Tana Hissy Coat says, you're no longer black. <laughs> Nicole Hannah Jones comes on Twitter explains there's a difference between being politically black and racially black. Um, so it depends on your politics, right? So that's the first thing to say. So um, if you are politically in their camp, if you agree with enough of critical race theory where they accept you or whatever, and that you're kind of spouting that line, if you're speaking from that unique voice of color that they ascribe to you based on the structurally determined outcomes that you faced in life, living as you are, um, in a white supremacist superstructure, well, then, you know, you were successful probably because, you know, you worked hard and, you know, you maybe got lucky. Like, it's very unfortunate the way that they're going to phrase it. They may even accuse you like they did Barack Obama of acting white. There's a book came out in 2013 titled Acting White. The whole first part of it explains that to become president, Obama had to act white. And so it kind of holds Obama's feet to the fire for not being authentically black. But at the same time, it's like it's really holding society's feet to the fire for making the condition be such that he has to act white to be able to have become elected president. So it depends. So if your politics are aligned, they're going to give you that kind of analysis. Now, if your politics are not aligned like Kanye, well, they're going to call you some names. And you basically are some form or another of a race traitor. You have internalized racism. You are denying your lived experience and, and actually selfishly acting in a way that you can promote yourself and your own brand and your own success. You're selling out the community by not speaking back using the, you know, the opportunities and resources that you've generated. You, you're not using those to disrupt the systems of oppression that keep your other, you know, brothers and sisters down. So at that point, they're going to start pulling out the more. I mean, we see this from politicians all the time, whether it's Tim Scott came out and said, you know, this critical race theory is bad and we don't have to repeat the things that got said to him as a result of that. Um, you got called lots of lots of names. They have lots of lots of things they call these people. So critical race theory would analyze it largely in terms of, well, how authentically are you speaking from your what they call position, your social position with respect to your various intersecting identity categories, your male you're half black, you're half Vietnamese, you're married to a white woman that's maybe relevant, you have children, like you're a Christian. So like all of those things are like, oh, oppressor, oppressed, mixed, uh, you know. And so what they're, they're, they're going to say is it's going to create a social location for you against the systems of oppression. And they're going to analyze your success, your voice, your ideas versus how they would start to try to untangle what that says about what your lived experience would be if you are authentically expressing what it means to be that in a white supremacist society. So basically, if you're railing on white supremacy all the time and blaming everything on white supremacy, you're probably good to go. And, you know, that's part of why you have had the degree of success, because you have what they have is an awakened racial consciousness or critical consciousness or woke. 
Um, but if you're you're saying, well, you know, I'm skeptical of some of these ideas or I'm on board with some of it, but not all of it. Or especially if you're like, nah, this is a really bad way to go about it. Like, what is this communist nonsense? Well, at that point, well, you're just, you know, internalized racism, internalized dominance, selfish motives, race traitor, et cetera. So hmm. that's how they would analyze you and your experience. And I see nothing pretty in any of those analyses. <laughs> so, James, like, I guess one of my big questions, man, is so that's how they would analyze, you know, Will. Um, and I'm sure they'd analyze me in a, in a very negative way. Um, my question is, why should I care? I mean, why, why does it matter, like, what, like, what these law professors think or care about or do? Like, how does it affect my life? Like, make the case for people who don't really necessarily even know what critical race theory is. They, they want to be, they don't think they're racist and they want to help people out. But at the same time, they're like, yeah, but I mean, I, I still want to have nice stuff and I don't want to be called an oppressor and stuff like that. So w- why does it matter to us? Well, I mean, you asked me this five years ago and I would have said, well, you got to keep your eyes open. This could possibly get a lot of power. It's making its way into power in certain sectors like the, you know, as you guys would call the secular academia, the universities. So it can get power and we want to keep an eye on it and make sure it doesn't get power. Now it's actually kind of in everything, right? Your job has a diversity training almost for hundred percent. Sure. If you're in a company of any sufficient size where they're using critical race theory, Coca-Cola got busted for teaching people literally straight out of Robin D'Angelo that they need to be less white. And so your job probably has it. Your kid's school almost certainly has it. The biggest teachers unions, if they're in public schools, for example, came along and said that they were going to, that first of all, they said critical race theory is not in our schools. And then they said, we're going to devote all this money, millions of dollars to making sure that it can stay in all 14,000 school systems in the country. And that we're going to defend legally anybody, any teacher who violates the law and teaches it anyway, or gets sued or whatever for civil rights act violations or uh, these other new anti-CRT bills that are coming in, coming down the pike or any other policy. And then, but it's not in schools, but it is, but it's not. And it's certainly in school. It's certainly being taught to your children to think about the world this way, to think of themselves. If they are in a situation like Will's is in a very complicated situation that they have to think about their experience in a particular way. That's very difficult to use intersectionality to sort out and that they have to understand. However, that, you know, just straight up white people, especially if they're straight white men who happen to also be Christian, hold all the cards and power in society and always have, and that they everything that goes wrong is probably because they cook the books to make it so that that would be the case. Meanwhile, they're teaching if, you're, if you happen to be, a, you know, it's you in school since you're white. I don't know what your children look like. Um, we'll pretend you, hello, fellow kids or whatever. You're in school again, and like Happy Gilmore or whatever that was. And so you're in school now <laughs> and they're, they're teaching you that, you know, well, you've contributed to these systems of oppression because look at all these things that happened in the past by people who look like you. Don't you feel guilty how are you going to use your your privilege to to disrupt and dismantle these systems of oppression? So it's in your kids' schools, it's in your workplace. It, I don't know about your church, but I hear from hundreds of churches around the country. I know that it was integral to a lot of the debates that were going on in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last two years, Resolution 9, and then they attempted to repeal Resolution 9, and then the recent election that landed Ed Litton in his job. Um, there's a lot of it 
creeping into virtually every aspect of society. We just watched a year of riots and looting and et cetera. And one of the justifications given for that, two of the justifications, actually, I'll give you one. I remember AOC saying that, that change is supposed to be uncomfortable. Well, that's a direct idea that comes out of these critical theories, whether critical race theory or not, um, called the pedagogy of, of uh, discomfort. So you learn about privilege by making people who are privileged discomfort. We can read from Robin, or sorry, from, from Barbara Applebaum about how white comfort is something that maintains white, white power and white supremacy. And so we have to disrupt white comfort. We can see it in Robin D'Angelo that says that we, anything that makes white people comfortable maintains the racial status quo. So we should be highly skeptical of anything that makes white people comfortable. So therefore justification for riots, looting, arson, all kinds of violence and madness in the streets, not bringing law and order to those situations. And then secondly, not only do we have that justification, but we had the justification of whiteness as property. Whiteness as property was a, a idea from a th legal scholar, Cheryl I. Harris, who wrote uh, a paper about that, a law review paper in 1993, and it's called Whiteness as Property. This is actually one of the core tenets now of critical race theories that we're going to regard whiteness as a type of property, it has everything like property rights. And if you want to tie that, that was again a justification. Well, you know, if they're burning a target, that's whiteness. That they're, they're, it's whiteness as property. If we tear this, or take this back to the Communist Manifesto just to tie it back where Karl Marx says the goal isn't to, to abolish all property, it's to abolish all bourgeois property. A whiteness as property is bourgeois property. That's the bourgeoisie of critical race theory or white people. Whiteness is what makes you bourgeois. The, it's a kind of a, a set of values, a set of way of thinking. White supremacy culture we saw on the um, Smithsonian's National African American History Museum document that came around while the cities were burning last summer. You know, what does white supremacy culture look like? Oh, you know, going to work on time, you know, having a work ethic, you know, the loyalty, you know, all these kind of virtues, um, not a good thing. So all of this crap comes out of critical race theory, all the madness that we've seen that has anything to do with it, like these kind of terrible analyses of racially charged situations over the last well, I would say several years, but really for sure over the last 13 months, 14 months, whatever it works out to, 14 now, was rooted in critical race theory. How does it impact your life? The question at this point is not how does it impact your life? It is how do we stop it from impacting your life? Because it's in virtually everything. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so I, I have, I have a, I have, I have a question. The, like, what's, what's the, if 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 you admit that there is inequality, you know that might be divided along racial lines, and that there is racism, maybe not necessarily you know systemic or institutional racism, but racism still exists. Um, you know, outside of CRT, like how how if you were president for a day, you know, like <laughs> oh, no. or, like like how, how, what what are some things that that you think you would implement that would not necessarily the level set, you know, to get everybody, oh, yeah. you know, on the same level, but, but basically just, you know, help, help society as a whole, just get along better. Erase all of the three letter agencies. Wait, no, that's a different <laughs> question. Get rid of all of them. Uh, um, no, I mean, so on this issue, the thing is that these are thorny, difficult issues. And I don't want to punt on this question. They are difficult issues because there is still racism and racism does have an effect. Okay, it's true. There is also the, there are also the legacies of past racism, like people being concentrated in bad neighborhoods, having a gigantic racial skew. Although I come from Appalachia, which is like 
not exactly. It's like a lot, a big giant spread out countryfied bad neighborhood. <laughs> but um, so of almost all white people, but nevertheless, right. the fact that there are concentrations of, of people in bad neighborhoods, according to race, that has historical roots that are in genuine racism. That, that, that's not deniable. And it's ridiculous to try to, to deny it. Um, the damages that some of the very bad policy had on particularly those, it, it's, it's ridiculous to say on black communities, but on particularly black urban economically depressed communities, the, what we would in lay terms call the ghetto or whatever, like those populations, uh, that's all real right? That there's, there's something to that. So that all has to be understood. These are very difficult problems to start unpacking. Um, what you want to do with these things though, is you want to take a per, a certain kind of approach to them. And that approach, first of all, contrary to what we li- read directly out of critical race theory introduction should actually favor incremental and step-by-step progress. And the reason why it should is every time you take a step, you should also be assessing. Was this the right move or the wrong move? Did this make the problem better or did it make the problem worse? And if you don't do that, what you're, you can very easily make a very bad policy change that has tremendous ramifications that make the problems worse rather than better, uh, like defund the police. That's turning out not to work out that well. <laughs> um, whereas instead, like what kind of police reforms would make sense? Well, you know, qualified immunity goes on the table. I don't know what I think about it. I, I'm not an expert in this. So let's talk about it. Let's see what happens. Let's take some, let's make some small changes and see what they do. Let's get involved with different kinds of, you know, what do they call them? Community programs or whatever. They had one that I remember reading about, and I don't know the details. It was very successful in Chicago at bringing down gang related crime. And then they stopped funding it. Well, why, you know, was it working if it's working? So what you want to do is you want to favor approaches that are very strongly evidence-based that are very sober and that are trying to not just like ham-fistedly make up for the tragedies and evils of the past, especially in some way that ascribes them to people in the present who were not directly involved in their, their production, but rather that starts trying to say, okay, you know, here's where we are right now. Here's a reality. Here's what this bad neighborhood, the South side of Chicago looks like. What do we do? And like start taking like, what's the actual evidence of the situation? What is the evidence of this intervention? What has worked? What has failed in the past? How do we craft policy? And then how do we move ourselves in a way that, you know, makes the best advantage of this to, to, to remedy these problems that have real historical roots, that have real day-to-day roots, right? Um, and how do we deal with that? I think that that's a very important way to look at it rather than how do we whip up people into feeling aggrieved about the circumstances that they're in and have them demand revolutionary change that's rooted in people who don't even believe in evidence. If they don't believe in evidence, they're not going to come like the truth is if they come up with, I won't say they're not going to come up with a good solution. They might, but if they do, it's by accident. And then you're only one accident away from a terrible solution. Right. This is what the Chinese used to call the bad emperor problem. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a person who all the power is in, they make good decisions. Things are great. But the second they make a bad decision, you have a big problem on your hands. So that's the, the one direction that I would go with. Another direction that I would go with is 
and I know the president, you, I, I know the, the idea behind the, if you're a president for a day, like <laughs> the president doesn't have the power to overturn bad jurisprudence, <laughs> Yeah, but there were some Supreme court decisions that need to be challenged that changed the definition of discrimination under the civil rights acts to read disparate impact rather than a requirement for there to be intention. Right. And so that has actually created this gigantic industry of hunting for disparate impact. And just like Ibram Kendi said, saying, well, that by definition means racism must have been the Can cause. Can you explain that again? Yeah. So the, 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 the idea was that, you know, you have like a company or whatever, or some in, institution that's happening and you say it could, you could say it's in fact, a good example would be the, the drug laws of the 1990s that Joe Biden was you know, behind. And now maybe I guess he's not, or maybe he is, or maybe he's not. Who knows? <laughs> so those drug laws definitely had a disparate impact. They jailed more black and Latinos than they did whites and Asians. There's definitely a disparate impact, right? So under a disparate impact interpretation of discrimination, whether it's in a company or whether it's a law or whatever, you could easily say, well, the reason that that happened or the, the best description of what happened there was racism. And intention comes into into it nowhere. Well, for drug policy, maybe there's an argument to be made there. I don't know. However, when you get to like, you know, outcomes in a company or whatever, that's a really dangerous road to go down to say discrimination must be occurring. Even if we can't spot anybody being discriminatory or anything in the system being discriminatory because some outcome like SAT scores being different at a school by on average, you know, you could say that, well, okay, look, well, on average, Asian kids get like the 1700 out of 1600 somehow. And the white kids are getting like a 1200 and the black kids are getting like a thousand or whatever. You look at these numbers and you say, well, obviously there must be racism in the school somewhere. Well, no, not obviously. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. There may be other factors and, um, under a disparate impact interpretation, once you see those differences in outcome on statistical average, you can say racism must somehow be in that system. And that creates the ability to start leveraging civil rights law, Title VI, if it's race, against that institution to put a lot of pressure and weight on it that may not actually be legitimate. Here's an example of an actual hiring program that kind of uses this same mentality. It's not the same as law or jurisprudence, but there's a program that's called Stride that came out of the University of Michigan. And I happen to know that one of the things that it did for hiring in at least some of the sciences was that they would, it turns out that in some particular sciences, at least, I don't know how it spreads out across everything, um, there's a two to one ratio of what they call first author papers. So if I write a paper with you, Will, and I put my name first, I'm first author. If you put your name first, you're first author. And so when you apply for, or you put that on your resume or whatever in academia, first authorship counts more than other authorship, which is stupid because sometimes like in my, my field was in math, the rule is almost always that it's just alphabetical, but um, first author papers count more in this, in, in many sciences. And so it turned out that there's a two to one ratio first author papers for men to women. And so the stride program using the same disparate impact mentality believes that 100% of that difference must be due to sexism and misogyny somewhere within the whole system. And so it's recommended policy to correct for that two to one disparate, disparate outcome is to just double the number of first author, what, you know, you get 10 points or whatever per first author paper, or however they score you. Well, if you're a man, you get 10 points. And if you're a woman, you get 20 for every single one, just double it. And obviously if there are other factors coming in, you're not, you're no longer just making up for actual discrimination, which I think most reasonable people would say, maybe we should do that. 
right? I know you said you bend a little bit to the left. So, you know, a lot of people, especially who bend to the left, would look at that and say, well, maybe we should be making up for if there's actual discrimination, even if we can't put our finger on all of it. But what if there are other explanations? And now we're ascribing to discrimination some other explanation and then giving credit according to that. Now we're creating a bogus incentive structure. That people will, of course, once there's a metric, people will game the metric because that's the name of the game of getting ahead. And so this is a very dangerous game to be playing. If you start creating an incentive structure around a bad definition of discrimination, and you can damn well bet you're going to get people to game that system and that what we call that is corruption or grift. And that's not healthy. You're not going to be promoting, you know, as Jordan Peterson puts it, competence is the, sh- the least corrupt form of a hierarchy. You know, if it's based on competence, I'm not saying it is perfect. He's not saying it's perfect. It's just it's the least corrupt is if you're based on can you do the job, yeah. right? And every step you take away from that is a little bit more corruption, a little bit more opportunity for grifters, a little bit more opportunity for people who are, and I'm not calling anybody any names, but some people are manipulative. They know they're manipulative and they don't care. And those people become superpowered under such a system. And those are the people that in a functioning society that you actually want to superpower the least. So there's just a raft of bad stuff that goes along with this. So if I had the power of, you know, king, I guess, instead of president, so (laughs) I could overrule jurisprudence, I would strongly push toward or just by fiat declare that we need to be rethinking to a more narrow definition of um, discrimination. I'm not going to even say that I would strike down all disparate impact claims, but I would say that the standard of proof for a disparate impact claim is going to be very, very high. Whereas when intention is present, you know, you're already there, like something along those lines, because that incentive structure creates this, a lot of this actual opening for this problem. So you're talking policy level, I would be doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also, if I were actually president for a day, everything that Joe Biden's put forth that has the word equity in it, I would just cancel. <laughs> got it. Uh, no, th- th- that's, that's, that's really good. I've, I've got so many more questions, but I, I, I do have to get one, one of our listener questions, um, who is a big fan of yours. Um, his name's Kevin. He's from Virginia. Um, his, his question for you is, um, um, many on the left believe the Mott and Bailey defense of CRT and claim is just teaching history. But what's the shortest way to demonstrate that it's not? Um, he says the people I encounter have not read any literature and probably won't. I mean, the shortest way that you would counter that is, and I don't have one immediately to hand, but it would be to find an example where the CRT explanation of what happened in history is actually wrong. Right. Where. um I, I, there's an example and I don't know the historicity of it. So I want to be very cautious around this example, but it gets brought up around the 1619 project. I'm not a historian. I probably have the details wrong, but it turns out that one of the very first, if not the very first, you know, slave owner document in the United States was given to a black person, a black person owned the slave. Right. And so that disrupts this white supremacy narrative. Or another claim that I know from history, for example, is that Native Americans were taking their slaves along with them on the Trail of Tears, right? And so this is another, you know, like, is that really white supremacy? You know, what's going on here? Was it more complex? Uh, you know, bringing up the idea that there's, but I mean, those are, those are specific quick shortcuts to trying to disrupt the claim. But a more general idea is actually to point out that, you know, history is complex and nuanced and difficult and people were people of their time for both good and for bad and that they were doing what they could with their time. Uh, and 
Therefore, what what we're doing when we're looking back, whether it's telling what, you know, they accuse us uh, currently in the United States of teaching whitewashed history. And I don't mean white people is the us. I mean, the United States is teaching whitewashed history and they want to teach 1619 history or whatever they want to call it. Right. And so critical race history, and that's honest history, they say, well, the thing is, is what you're actually doing in both of those cases is a historiography. You're telling a story about history or a story using history to tell the story. And there are obviously more than one of those, right? And so the question has to become, how are you deciding that the 1619 story is honest, but the, you know, manifest destiny or whatever, the the white version from the Texas Board of Education, stereotypically speaking, you know, of the 1980s, how do you know which one of those two stories is more accurate if you're going to admit that they're both stories? In critical race theory, we didn't go through the whole list of tenets, but it claims that one of its core assumptions is that a very useful tool, with it, whether it's in law, whether it's in science, or whether it's in history, is the telling of so-called counter stories. So you understand then that the 1619 Project is meant as, and this is, Nicole Hannah-Jones has said this as much, I don't think exactly in these words, but is a counter story to the other story of American history. So when you, the thing is, is that history is a very difficult thing. We have limited access and knowledge to it. The question is, why should we accept a very simplistic narrative and call that the honest history, right? Like where in critical race theory, for example, are you going to deal with the fact that, do you know what race faced the only attempted ethnic cleansing in the United States' history? Chinese, Hmm. Chinese, Hmm. not black, Chinese, right? And so... You have literally in the in the late 1800s going into the early 1900s under the Chinese Exclusion Act and anti-miscegenation laws that would prevent your own marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese people were not allowed to come into the country. So you could bring no new Chinese people in. There were virtually no Chinese women. And then you couldn't marry across race. So Chinese men who had come over and built the railroad and built San Francisco and built all of these things, you know, it's very reminiscent of kind of slave stuff. And you're like, oh, this is very critical race theory flavored were then literally being ethnically cleansed. When you look at the Plessy versus Ferguson decision about the segregated train cars in Louisiana at the Supreme Court, which is very common when brought up in critical race theory, literally you have the one dissenter, Harlan, Harlan, uh, Justice Harlan, yeah, um, pointing out that uh, there's one race of this country that's so alien to our own that that shouldn't even be considered the Chinese race, right? And he's sitting there defending blacks and saying the Chinese are so foreign, we can't even consider them people in a Supreme Court decision. So you have some serious exclusion of Chinese going on under literally called the Chinese Exclusion Act. And literally that was the name of the law. Yeah, (laughs) And yet, you know, according to a critical race theory analysis, that should completely obliterate their ability to succeed in society because the white supremacist system, blah, blah, blah. But instead, you now have to turn their honest history has to be somehow that Chinese people in the United States who are at that level of exclusion and ethnic cleansing and everything else are now to be understood as having sold out to whiteness in order to be literally at the top of the pile in terms of success. And it's like, you know, it's not to discredit anybody else's struggle or suffering or circumstances, but the, 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 what it is, is to discredit a one dimensional analysis of history and say, how can you consider that honest history? If you're not even willing to get into the ugly stuff about it, if you're not even willing to get into the fact that, you know, hundreds of thousands of men in the, uh, civil war died in slavery, not knowing a single black person, or probably a lot of them being outright racist who didn't like them, but still wanted to end slavery because they saw it a as evil and b as in opposite 
in opposition to the Constitution and the, hmm. the Declaration of Independence, which are really the the centerpiece of the U.S. So how are you telling honest history if you're if you're twisting the facts to fit a narrative that upholds a particular outcome? I, I mean, it's it's absurd on its face when you actually start kind of looking at it and you understand that what's being told, and it's not to say that anybody's telling something different. That what we're doing is we're telling stories about history. Yeah. And then to claim that one of those stories, by virtue of some critical theory magic, is the only one that's honest, the only one that doesn't have, you know, a bias, or because it's countering some existing bias, it therefore must be more true. That's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. Mm. You know, you know that everything that you said is is makes makes sense. Um, and you know, it, it, there's another question I've got for you from another listener that actually ties into what you just said. Uh, this one's sure. from, from Corgan from Georgia. He um, he he says it seems the choices were provided are talk about the his talk about the full history and why people feel bad, or only talk about the good things America has done and deny the struggles of people of color. So, what is the correct framing that allows us to have one common memory of what happened? I mean, I think that I mean we hear a lot. You know, Black history is American history, or whatever. Or African American history is American history, and uh, those are cute slogans. Um, the truth is that if we want to have a cohesive story, we have to tell the story as a cohesive story. In other words, we have to acknowledge history as it really was. We have to say, yeah, you know, here we're, and this is, I don't know what these people are talking about with whitewashed history, because I remember these lessons. I remember reading stuff about Jefferson that was quite critical, for example. Um, but I remember reading a lot about, okay, you had this vision of a country where all men are created equal and endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. And then you had people like Jefferson who held slaves, who's wrestling with this. You can read it in his own writing. It's not even hidden. It's like, it's not like it's, you have to dig something up. You have a first draft of the declaration of independence that rails on Britain for slavery that didn't end up being in the final draft of the declaration of independence. And so you have this wrestling match around the issue of slavery, you know, uh, you have this, this issue around, say, the three-fifths compromise. You look back at these things. But what you see is you see a, a country that in the late 1770s or mid-1770s hit a point where it was going to break from its historical continuum with Britain, it was going to strike out on a new path. But it already had a set of conditions, and it had visionaries who thought things, some of whom thought good things like all men are created equal and some of whom thought well if we can't be white supremacists what's the point of being and that's a terrible thing and the process of working out arguing over these things working toward the ideals what won out in the end was the document that says all men are created equal and then working again you know to bring that into being jefferson struggled with it and he he wrote i mean I, if you read american sphinx which is a fairly critical biography of Jefferson, it makes him look kind of like a crazy person. Personally, frankly, you can read like all the struggling he did with him and the guilt he had for kicking that question to another generation, knowing it might tear the country apart. And then you have, you know, Lincoln struggling with the various aspects of it. And you can say Lincoln this or Lincoln that. But the point is, if we want to tell a story, that story needs to be one of the world was a much uglier place in 1770 than it is in 2020 in a lot of ways. And what allowed for that actual progress, I think it has to be a story of genuine progress toward freedom. 
That's what, when you say progress, what do you mean? Like, you know, things getting better. No, I mean, toward freedom, actual genuine freedom. And that progress was because those ideals that make us Americans, that you have the Declaration of Independence behind you, I have the Declaration of Independence behind me, we can go to the south side of Chicago and find some gangbanger and he's got the Declaration of Independence behind him. We can go find some Latino, you know, dude in, in, in East LA and he's got the Declaration of Independence behind him. Same with the Constitution for all of it. And those ideals working their way out and people fighting in defense of them and trying to understand them more and more clearly, rather than saying, I call into question the very foundations of the neutral principles of constitutional law, critical race theory. Those principles tell a long and challenging story that I think isn't perfect, but we, that we have a lot of reasons to be proud of in terms of veering toward freedom, veering toward equality, veering toward opportunity, veering toward getting out of the ugliness that plagued the world. I'm not going to say that the chattel slavery that we practiced here in the North American continent in the early uh, 19th century, like is somehow not a big deal. It's maybe was one of the, I don't know, uh, tons about all the different kinds of slavery that were ever practiced. Some of them were definitely more brutal than others, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a good one. Let's like not BS about it. <laughs> and it wasn't a good one. And, but this is the kind of thing that plagued slavery has plagued mankind forever. And even these people that are kind of Marxist, like Marx even said, the second stage of history is slave economies. Like he literally said slavery stage two. <laughs> and so it's like out of six, with capitalism as stage four, so it's kind of after slavery. Um, their own their own doctrine, you know, acknowledges that slavery and and other abuses and basically being kind of barbaric colonialist jerks that had very narrow views of the world and very self serving views of the world. That was a feature of history everywhere and always. And we finally came up with these universalizing principles in those documents: Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, Constitution that allowed human beings for the first time to transcend that. Now, did the United States do it better than everybody? I don't know, but we started the fire, right? Mm, and maybe no. Britain picked it up or Denmark or somewhere else picked it up and did it a little bit better here or there. But the same ideas spread around much of what we call the West and have been very successful at creating the most liberal, prosperous, free societies that the world has ever known and probably will ever know. Um, and that's what's being risked to be thrown away. And that story, though, is universal. The fact of the tragedies and, and evils of history um, doesn't change the fact that the story is one of overcoming those in a way that the world had never achieved before. You can say, oh yeah, but what about the Native Americans? No, well, stage one for Marx before you get to slaves is primitive communism. Hmm. So according to Marx, if you're kind of Marxist leaning, like a lot of the critical race theorists are, slavery is what happens if you go to that primitive communism that they hold up as an indigenous example frequently in critical race theory well that leads to slavery that's next mm. so it's like their their own analysis doesn't make any sense we have a much better story to tell that it brings everybody in and that has now created freedom and opportunity the opportunity to share the opportunity to i mean look at like what's happened with music over the past century where you know we had like the the black Renaissance or the Harlem Renaissance and like all this art and music and it's all starts to infuse. And now we got rock and roll and now we got, you know, hip hop. We got all this fun stuff that wasn't there before. And it's like, this is the magic of America. And that is a story worth telling yeah. for everybody. Mm, that, that, you know, that, that's, that's such a, uh, it's such a great, I wish, I wish that was like the last point, but I actually have one last question. <laughs> and, you can ask all the questions you want. And, and, and it's, and it's this, it's, it's, 
I don't, I mean, based on our conversation, based on my time, based on the, the stuff I read and watch um, that you put out, I don't view you as a racist. I mean, well, thanks. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, Josh would probably be more racist than you only because I knew like, it. He, he's got, he, he, he's, he's got a family tree steeped in the Confederacy, which he'll, he'll tell you himself. Hey, yeah. I'm from New York. I didn't do dude. it. He's from Appalachia, dude. <laughs> no, no, no. I moved here as a kid. My family's from New York. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so I'm just like, like, how do you, how do you have conversations, constructive disagreements with people about CRT without being considered a racist and and does that does does racism need like a reboot as far as the definition like I've heard you actually use oh, yeah. the term like neo-racism you know so yeah, I'm yeah. curious if you could talk about that okay so there's two questions and one of them is does racism need a reboot as a definition I think yes I think we actually need to find a common ground definition and I actually stumbled upon one that's not some weird dialectical synthesis that retains all of it I think that racism is in fact, when, when I read Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins from 1991, this, that's where intersectionality became a thing. She didn't define it there, that's earlier, but that's where it became a thing, right? That's where it took over the world. And she talks about the fact that race is imposed, and that's why we can't use vulgar postmodern deconstruction, she says. We can't use a vulgar social construction approach to take apart race. We can't use the liberal race isn't really real, you know, we're, you know, universal human first, everybody's an individual or whatever first. We can't use that because race is imposed, she says. Right. So race is a construct, a social construct that's made by people who have power and it's imposed upon people that they wish to dominate. That's the thesis that she has. Okay. So I look back to that and I think about this and I think, you know what? She has an excellent definition of racism. Racism is actually the imbuing of social categories with that kind of significance. So what I say is that racism is putting social significance into racial categories for the purposes of racially stereotyping, discriminating, or scapegoating. Hmm. It's a very succinct definition. It actually agrees with the critical race theorists without giving them power because they are doing it and they know they're doing it. When they scapegoat whiteness and when they say in Being White, Being Good, for example, a book by Barbara Applebaum, that being white and doing whiteness are one and the same thing and that whiteness confers upon white people privileges that they cannot renounce. So therefore they are being scapegoated. That's racial scapegoating. That is imposing a white racial identity onto people whose skin happens to be a particular way or their ethnicities happen to be particular organizations. And that is scapegoating them for doing that. That satisfies the definition of racism. They are being racist. But at the same time, it matches everybody's intuitive definition of racism, right? It's judging people by their skin color or prejudging them. But isn't that exactly what I said? Racial scapegoating, stereotyping, and discriminating that we could add in prejudice if you want, but that's really what prejudice is. And so it is putting that social significance into racial categories, making your racial category, I am black, or I am Vietnamese, or I am white, or I am what, making that mean something that is actionable on the lines of stereotyping, scapegoating, or discriminating. That's racism. And so I do think we need a new definition. And I think I came up with a new definition that, that works. And I think it works for everybody, but the critical race theorists can't admit it because it indicts them. Yeah, They can't possibly admit it. So we do need that reboot. Now, how do I have productive conversations? I found that there's, I I hate to say it, there's one and only one way. I did it mostly today. I don't talk from me. I talk from them. I read their literature to people. That's how. Like you don't want, you want to argue with me about critical race theory? We can argue all day, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read to you from critical race theory and introduction. 
what do you, you want to argue with that? Please do. I want you to argue, <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. what, what I found is that productive dialogue only happens by showing, not telling. It's that simple. You actually have to, and it sucks. And it's part of how they're so successful at taking so many things over is that you actually have to do the due diligence of going and reading their words in their own words and then understanding them, which does take some doing in some cases, and then showing them to people and saying, this is what they said. What do you think it means when the first paragraph of critical race theory and introduction starts with critical race theory is and ends with critical race theorists call into question the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment, rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. What do you think it means when it says on the next page that critical race theory, unlike many disciplines, contains an activist element? What do you think that means? Like argue with their words. I don't have to argue. um, I don't have to characterize critical race theory any particular way. All I have to do is set it in its own context that they're proud of with an odd setting for a bunch of Marxists, you know, or in Alison Bailey's paper uh, about privilege preserving epistemic pushback in the critical race philosophy classroom. That's literally what the paper is about. She says, oh, yeah, well, critical thinking is about this, that and the other thing about the critical theory tradition that comes from a totally different set of assumptions that rooted in neo-Marxism and their analysis of power. Okay, well, there it is. This is what it is. If you want to be a neo-Marxist and satisfy this, I think, fair definition of racism, guess what? It's a free country. More power to you. Rights are alienating, I guess. (laughs) You get to do what you want. It's your right, but you should know what you're signing up for. Mm -hmm. So the way that I find to have productive conversations is one and only one way, which is I have the gift of having read most of their books repeatedly. So I just read from their books or quote from their books or bring up examples from their books or show examples of their their own writing again and again and again and again and do with that what you want it's a it is it's a free country it turns out this is a very controversial thing to say you hear all the time from our politicians racism has no place in our society it turns out that's false i don't want there to be any racism <laughs> i wish there was no racism but it's constitutionally protected and it has to be and um because if not you know, pick your least favorite character, whether it's Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson. I don't care who you pick. They get to define racism and it has no place in society according to their definition. Watch out. Watch out. Mm. Constitutionally protected. Mm. The ACLU back in 1971 stood up for neo-Nazis marching in a Jewish community in Skokie, Illinois, because they said they had a First Amendment right to do it. And that's America, folks. That's America. And that's because we have that, we are able to do things that no other country would be able to do because we don't have a state coming in saying what you can and cannot say, what you can and cannot believe. It is a matter of your own conscience. And if you want to believe dirty, evil things, you get to. But, you know, that's on you. But we get to profess good things, whether it's Christianity or equality or what equality theory, enlightenment, (laughs) rationalism, legal reasoning, you know, (laughs) all these things. Yeah. So, so last question, you just recently changed your, your Twitter handle and I've got to ask not, not what your (laughs) new Twitter handle is, but what, but what, what the 1 billion moms thing was, um, before that, like what, what, what is, what is that? Okay. So the deal is just in general, (laughs) I've had a running joke, of course, that I changed my Twitter handle to match (laughs) kind of the, 
Sometimes it's something I think is just cutesy or fun yeah. or whatever, like uh, just this fun little pretend title I give myself. And I started <laughs> doing it a long time ago in defiance to somebody making fun of me uh-huh. um, for something. Actually, I started it with in defiance to when it was like, you know, there's that big feminist push for everybody to put their credentials. Like you had to put your degree on. Mm-hmm. Your, yeah. like, oh, you know, I'm Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Jill Biden or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was before the Jill Biden one. It was now I, I made up a fake degree as a humor, as a, as a joke <laughs> and put it on there. And it just kind of rolled. And then what happened was I got uh, retweeted by Trump last summer. And um, people were like, you have to denounce him. You have to denounce him. You have to denounce him. So I changed it to James Lindsay retweeted by the president. <laughs> Which is just, a, I didn't, I, I put no value statement in there. It's just a fact. I was retweeted by the president. And so it's kind of like a trolling thing and people giving trouble. So not that long ago, somebody got all mad on Twitter and was some, you know, I think it's a blue check, but it might've been some random person. It was going off and it was like, oh, James Lindsay and his one, one million moms march or whatever, like the one million man, like I've got all these moms at school yeah, yeah. boards going and yelling at the school boards, uh-huh. and like James Lindsay and his one million moms. And I was like, I, I re quote tweeted it and I correct, I put a little <laughs> asterisk and I, instead of million, I changed it to billion. Uh-huh. So then I just went and changed my handle to getting 1 billion moms. <laughs> and of course I have this like low key kind of like sexual innuendo line to the whole joke line mm-hmm. series of jokes. So there's like people kind of read it that way, but it was more about I'm building a movement of moms of mama bears <laughs> who are going to fight back for their kids yeah. and they're going to unleash a power, a healthy, good power, not a scary reactionary power back on this movement. And I I honestly see that as one of the key sources where we should be turning to, you know, motivate and organize is get moms involved. Moms don't want a crazy, they don't want a crazy like Pinochet dropping people out of helicopters, as it says, (laughs) overreaction. They want just good stuff for their kids. And if we're focusing on people who are focused on getting good stuff for everybody's kids, and that's the movement, the counter movement, I'm 100% behind that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm getting a billion moms behind me to push back (laughs) on this this crazy stuff to save our kids. I mean, if you're not willing to save the next generation, you're not doing anything right. Wow. No, that, that, that's awesome. Um, so, so what do I have to do to have you be James Lindsay faithful politics podcast is something you should listen to. It's a mouthful, but it's kind of like the title of your book, right? <laughs> it might be too many characters. It turns out there are rules. I've changed my thing so many times. There's a character limit. You cannot use the word Twitter and you cannot use the word verified in your handle on <laughs> darn technology. Ask me how over, I know overlords. <laughs> Because when Twitter rejected my verification recently, I tried to change it to verified with your mom, (laughs) but they wouldn't let me. That's hilarious. (laughs) Well, uh, thank you so much, James. This was an awesome talk, awesome conversation. You you, um, have definitely brought a lot to the table, and I hope people um, learn, listen, um, visit. Is it newcourses.com? Newdiscourses.com. I'm sorry, newdiscourses.com. And uh, and any, uh, I guess, any any other events coming up that people should be looking out for for you? I mean, I'm all, I'm all over the place. We're going to try to have a new discourses event probably at the, you know, getting close to the end of the year. So people should stay tuned for that. I just did a workshop in Tampa where I talked about critical race theory for like six hours to an audience or five and a half hours or something. <laughs> and so those videos are <laughs> going to come out probably next month. I've actually, I'm trying to finish. I've, I got so tired doing the workshop. I confess. I finally, I took days off. I've not (laughs) taken days off in years. I actually took days off. And so I'm, 
planning after we get done with this. Yeah. And I've got a couple of little things to do, and I'm actually going to go back to finishing it. I'm taking the lecture series that I gave at that workshop and actually turning it also into a book, hmm. um, but different. I'm writing the book. I'm not just like transcribing the lecture. So it'll be, <laughs> it'll be like the proper deeper dive. So those things are, I'm going to self-publish that through new discourses so it can be out and available faster. Um, I don't want to go through the six month to, to one year waiting period to mm -hmm. go through a proper book publishing. So all of that, I'm hoping by the end of next month or early September will be available or start to be available. So people should stay tuned for that. Cause if you want the definitive word on critical race theory, I hate to sound arrogant. It's not my style, but I believe I finally have it. I believe I've said it out loud and I believe I'm writing it and I've almost written it down. And if you want to know what it is, where it comes from, ideologically it's roots and how it thinks, how it acts, and what, you know, at least touch upon what we might be able to do about it. I think that it is the, the set of resources. If you don't want to, I'm not greedy. If you don't want to buy the book, just watch the videos. Like they're, <laughs> they're going to be free. Right. Like I'm not trying to sell anything, but all that's going to be coming out and be available soon. So keep your eyes open for that. It'll be advertised vigorously on my Twitter and new discourses, both when it becomes more relevant. I also actually, speaking of publishing books through new discourses, I'm about to publish somebody else's first book through New Discourses, which is a guide to institutionally fighting back against what he calls woke craft. So kind of the way critical race theory, these other critical theory ideas insinuate themselves into institutions and what you can do to identify that and, and talk back to it in a reason. I mean, this guy's a university in a university. So he's, you know, got that. He's very, it's very clean. It's not shooting from the hip. It's, it's very intelligent and very professional and will really help people in professional settings. So keep eyes open for that too. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, um, thanks again. And uh, thank you for our listeners and viewers and uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Yeah. Thank Bye. you both. Bye.